Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 96th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, how communities of faith are accelerating the transition to renewable energy, we'll hear from an organization working with houses of worship across the state to analyze their own energy footprint and install solar while rallying these communities to actively engage in state-level energy policy and regulatory issues. But before that conversation, a few short updates. You've already heard from me by now that NCSEA's Making Energy Work Conference 2023 is on the calendar for November 2nd through 3rd in Raleigh. Make sure to go ahead and register today as early bird ticket pricing is set to expire at the end of August. For more information, visit makingenergywork.com. And this week, we expect the next iteration of the Carbon Plan proceedings to kick off, otherwise known as the CPIRP, which is a combined carbon plan and integrated resource planning process. As a reminder, this stems from House Bill 951, which mandated that the North Carolina Utilities Commission create a carbon plan to reach 70% emissions reductions in the electricity sector by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050, with updates made to that plan every two years. Well, as you may remember, we received the first carbon plan order from the commission right at the end of 2022. Now, the proceedings are set to kick off again, with Duke filing their own modeling sometime here this week. Interveners will then have 180 days to respond with comments and modeling of their own. We'll be sure to cover what is in Duke's plan in the very near future and keep you updated on all the latest, so stay tuned. Support for the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast comes from Solarize the Triangle, a community-based group purchasing program for solar energy and battery storage, available to Triangle area homeowners, businesses, and nonprofit organizations. More information, along with free evaluation appointments, through September 30th, can be found at SolarizeTheTriangle.com. Clean energy. Our first guest on the podcast is a youth climate justice activist who graduated from Virginia Tech in 2021 with a degree in agricultural sciences. As a full-time organizer, they enjoy working at the intersections of faith, food, art, energy, and environmental justice. Our guest serves as the Southeast Regional Representative for the National Interfaith Power and Light Steering Committee and as a board member of Interfaith Creation Care of the Triangle. Our guest is also a co-chair of the Southeast Climate and Energy Network Working Group and acts as a co-chair for U.S. Climate Action Network's JEDI Committee. Through storytelling and community organizing, our guest seeks to educate, inspire, and mobilize a movement to equitably act on climate. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ren Martin, Eco-Justice Program Coordinator at NC Interfaith Power and Light to the podcast. Ren, welcome to the pod. Yeah, very glad to be here with you. And our next guest joined the staff of the North Carolina Council of Churches in August 2011. 
in which they have served as the director of the Interfaith Power and Light campaign for over a decade, and in 2020, launched the Eco-Justice Connection as a strategy to highlight the intersectional work of the Council. She received a Master's of Divinity degree from the Unitarian Universalist Seminary Star King School for the Ministry at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. In 2004, our guest was hired as UNC Chapel Hill's first sustainability research associate and went on to co-initiate Trace Collaborative, LLC, a consulting firm specializing in the implementation of sustainability within the design and construction industry. She is a founding member of the Southeast Faith Leaders Network and is an active member of the U.S. Climate Action Network. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Susanna Tuttle, Eco-Justice Connection Director at North Carolina Interfaith Power and Light. Susanna, welcome to the pod. Thank you. I am so excited to be here today. All right. So to just jump right in and get started, can can both of y'all tell us a little bit more about North Carolina Interfaith Power and Light? and the role that your organization serves here in the state of North Carolina. Sure, well, I'll jump in um, as director of NCIPL, which is our acronym for North Carolina Interfaith Power and Light. Um, I've been involved with this work uh, since 2011. However, the organization was launched uh, in 2005 as a program of the North Carolina Council of Churches. And we were already doing work around what we call the eco-justice connection here in North Carolina. But as we were doing that work uh, out of the North Carolina Council of Churches, simultaneously, there was a national movement being developed um, originally out of California and spread like wildfire (laughs) across the country. And Interfaith Power and Lights root themselves organically as community-based initiatives. And so our program with the North Carolina Council of Churches naturally fit into the Interfaith Power and Light Network that I mentioned was expanding across the country. So in 2005, we became officially the 16th state affiliate to the National Interfaith Power and Light Network. Um, And we've been doing this work, as I said, um, since 2005. There are now over 40 states with Interfaith Power and Light affiliates that represent approximately 22,000 congregations. So we're really pleased to be a part of a network. And I'll let Ren explain just a little bit more about how the network works nationally as we connect through our different state affiliates. Yeah, so I actually have the honor to serve on the National Steering Committee and serve as the uh, Southeast representative for that. And so I I just wanted to point out that in the Southeast, we actually have a, a very strong connection to one another because we have to in the work that we're doing. And there is a uh, group nationally that works for IPL versus there are also 40 affiliates that are, are underneath that. And that network is actually very key in the way that we do this work because it is through connections that uh, we grow. And I think that's why when we have this kind of like Three, three levels of engagement with NCIPL. We have NCIPL, we have the Eco-Justice Connection, and we have the North Carolina Council of Churches. I think that middle one, that Eco-Justice Connection, is so, so important because it's connecting all of the different issue areas that we're working on as North Carolina Interfaith Power and Light works on our energy initiative. 
we'll talk about this in, in just a little bit. I, you know, I know North Carolina is a very unique market as it compares to a lot of other places across the country. And, and we'll talk about some of the specific challenges or, or issues that we're looking at here in the state. But I have to imagine, right, as part of a, a larger network of interfaith power and light with more than 40 states and 22,000 congregations, there's, there's a lot of overlap or issues that you might be collaborating with. I'd love to hear maybe a little bit more about, you know, some of the, the larger programmatic areas that the, the larger interfaith power and light network is, is working on. Yes, well, through our shared work, um, we all uh, connect our facilities. Um, I often, when I introduce myself in presentations, you know, remind folks that we are not a utility company, although we are named after a lot of the power and light utilities that exist around the country. And by intentionally giving name to interfaith power and light, it is a play on the concept of the power and light within us and our relationship to power and light. So what is unique about IPLs in comparison to other advocacy organizations is that we not only care about issue areas and advocate on behalf of those issues, we actually are operating and maintaining facilities as houses of worship all over the country. And so here in North Carolina, and through our structure of the Council of Churches representing 18 denominations, we're talking millions of square footage of facility space of a particular building type that does not have a unique designation on the utility grid. And I think that is so important and, and sort of the, the, the key pin in all of the work that we're doing to educate, inspire, and mobilize people of faith and conscience to get involved in energy justice and energy democracy issues is that these very places that we hold sacred as meeting spaces, as places to, to bring our spirit and our souls together in community. We have weddings, we have funerals, we have you know all of our most special gatherings in these facilities. If we have a disconnect to the reality of what it means to power these buildings and to literally keep the lights on and how that's done through our current energy grid system in relationship to the world that we want for clean renewable energy that helps communities stay healthy rather than pollutes our environment and our planet, then that's a real, it's it's a moral imperative to do this work. So I'll come back a little bit more to what that means to have no unique designation on the grid. But I think that that's sort of our sweet spot of why we're both work in partnership with many organizations, but are also very unique in the work that we do. I'm curious, you know, why why is the faith community an important avenue or area of focus for decarbonizing North Carolina's economy? And how does this pathway differ from other organizations that are approaching the decarbonization pathway challenge here in the state? And, you know, I, I specifically think about, I think what you were just mentioning as well is there's there's so much alignment, right, between so many of the different denominations that you're working with and, and their faith and and what is entailed in, in a lot of the movement that we're working on here, right, and, and the different communities and being able to connect with people in a way that uh, maybe other organizations in North Carolina are not able to. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, why NCIPL is, is really focused on the faith community. 
Well, first and foremost, we are a faith-based initiative. So it's been fun across the many years of doing this work, how um, increasingly environmental organizations will say, you know, we really want to turn to some non-traditional partners and get some new voices in, in this work. And, you know, they invite me and I have to remind everyone, well, first off, there's no such thing as the faith community. <laughs> there are communities of faith and of all forms of diversity. And even within um, a single congregation, there will be a lot of different people coming from a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different lived um, experiences. And so I like to remind the environmental community that we're actually the traditionalists in many forms. And so thanks for the invitation to be at the table, but we need to expand the numbers of voices and perspectives and communities that, and the different sectors. And one of the reasons we like working with NCSEA so much is to integrate not only the environmental perspectives, but the business and economic and workforce development, you know, impacts on our economy um, from an eco-justice perspective. So yeah, it's 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 been a joy to to really be an authentically based faith organization that can speak, I like to say all the time, as people of faith, we speak the truth and we seek the truth. And we recognize that the truth does not always come in the form of good news, but we have to know what that truth is in order to really support our communities with their realities. And so educating folks through their own congregations, through their own self-identified communities of faith in direct relationship to their own facilities that, again, they are operating, maintaining, having to fundraise in order to keep the lights on literally and figuratively. As I mentioned, again, as nonprofits, we're lumped into this small to medium-sized business rate structure that really doesn't suit our needs as nonprofit faith-based organizations. And so there's been a lot of discussion around this great awakening that needs to take place from a faithful perspective of, first of all, how we care for creation and take good care of our Earth's resources as part of our spiritual practice, but also the economic side of things. Every dollar spent on our electricity bill is a dollar taken away from the ministry, which is really the intention of why we gather. So it's a it's a multi you know moving force of 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 power and light from within that we're really excited to inspire and mobilize across North Carolina and across the entire country. Well, I for one am feeling very inspired because uh, it's it is really exciting all of the the work that that your organization is doing. And, and, you know, we've seen it firsthand in, in partnership with, with North Carolina Interfaith Power and Light here at NCSEA. And so, you know, to that point, uh, you're not engaging in these efforts alone here in North Carolina. And you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, some of the coalitions that uh, you're, you're a part of. So how are you collaboratively addressing the challenges in front of us as part of these coalitions within the state? Yeah, I would say that, you know, not only is the faith community important in the sense that we provide a hope-filled response to climate and we do so through a caring, faith-filled lens, it's also important because the connections that we make through our congregations, the, the vast network, uh, means that we're not in this work alone. Not only are we working with people of faith, we're also working with other groups, coalitions, nonprofits, community centers that are really focused on caring for the environment. 
uh, and making sure that we achieve a just transition. And so thinking about some of the issues here in North Carolina that we face in current day, such as intervening in the carbon plan or the recent rate hike hearings, we have strong partnerships with groups like People Power NC who are helping to try and lead this work. And even inside of NCIPL, we have our own coalitions. We have our strong energy working group who is they're filled with professionals that have years and years and years of experience working in energy and have been actively advocating for North Carolina to be at the forefront of the conversation in terms of energy justice. Uh, we also uh, have this forming partnership with Interfaith Creation Care of the Triangle, where we are coming together to create a youth leaders initiative. One of the most important things for the youth leadership initiative is that we're making sure that youth leaders are at the forefront of this conversation as well, because through this work, we can't do it alone. We can't do it in silos. We can't do it without intergenerational, interfaith, interracial relationships with everyone in the community. And I think that's where NCIPL really, really shines. We truly care about the power of partnerships and making sure that we're working in our community and that we're raising up the voices of communities in the work that we do. And and I can attest to the to the power of partnerships. You know, NCSEA is as many of our listeners are aware. You know, we just had an episode on the podcast recently about updates to building codes here in North Carolina, and NCIPL has been very involved in that process as well, and helping to support efforts to update our woefully outdated energy codes here in the state. Uh, and and that's just one instance of of an issue that that you all have been directly involved in. And, and Ren, you also mentioned things like the carbon plan and uh, rate cases in front of the commission. So there's a lot going on. And, you know, your your organization is bringing so many more voices to the table because you are representing so many different groups and organizations and congregations across the state, which is hugely impactful for the work that we're doing here in, in the, the energy space in North Carolina. So Susanna, you, you talked a little bit earlier about some of the challenges, specifically not having a rate structure in place for houses of worship across the state. Uh, I, you know, I'm curious, thinking kind of bigger picture here, uh, what are some of the unique opportunities and challenges that houses of worship have for deploying their own clean energy technologies or projects here in the state? And can you tell us a little bit more about some of the journeys that these congregations across the state are experiencing when considering their own options like rooftop solar, for example? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I have to remind folks all the time that congregations organize themselves autonomously and decision-making sometimes takes a little bit longer than having, you know, one or two folk um, decide something and say, yeah, like it's a go. We're going to, we're going to move forward on solar. And so uh, timing is really key for us. And I think I've done a lot of work over the course of the many years with our partners, helping them understand how, how much longer things can take um, to actually implement 
a project. So that education is a lot of what we do to begin with. And we need our partners to give us the content in order to be able to inspire folks to say, hey, yeah, we can do this. You know, churches historically, congregational facilities are designed in a certain way where the rooftop isn't always ideal to uh, install solar. You know, that that pitched roof, that traditional, you know, chapel and steeple, um, is it, it can be challenging in itself. A lot of them are historic buildings to begin with, and they don't want to, you know, mess or integrate sort of modern, you know, element to the very traditional design of their facilities. So getting over those hurdles can often be big steps that need to be taken before we can actually get into the to the to the realities of of, of even getting an analysis done if solar is appropriate for the facility. So being creative around parking lots, being creative around other land mounted systems is something that I get really excited about. And we just it just takes a lot of work to even get in the door and be able to talk about these issues to get enough of the right people in the community to become champions to help the whole community understand the value of it. And I say that from a perspective, again, uh, um, economically, as as nonprofits, churches have to raise all of the money that they you know choose to implement anything with. So whether it's a ministry or putting a new roof on or getting a new HVAC system and, and particularly with solar solar until recently you know was very expensive and really out of the reach of many of our communities of faith especially those that are underserved and in a low wealth communities to begin with so as a justice oriented program we really want to highlight and focus opportunities um, that make it easy to access solar and we've been involved in law related cases around access to third-party sales. We were an active part of that. Big shout out to Southern Environmental Law Center for representing us in that case. And then over the course of the years have gotten enough folks to understand where policy changes need to take place so that we activate our community members to advocate for the policies we need. And when the rebate programs were established, in North Carolina through the North Carolina General Assembly, we worked really hard once that law was passed to work with Duke Energy to actually design a specific carve out for nonprofits for those rebates. Because as nonprofits, we do not have eligibility to go after other rebate programs and tax incentive programs. And Duke was very supportive of that. We've gained great success in working with the utilities and in identifying opportunities for our particular unique scenarios. And so that program ran was the best on-ramp for many of our congregations to be able to actually save money by installing renewable energy. And then Probably most importantly, and what continues now that those rebates have sunsetted in the state, we want to get them back. (laughs) We're working hard to advocate for that. But the solar leasing program that was made available through that same uh, lawmaking is something that we are really promoting. No money down, working with companies, solar installers that are members of NCSEA to really promote the opportunities of leasing, which is, again, an on-ramp that um, only recently has been made available for our congregation. So 
Um, we're really championing the call to action around community solar, where congregations can participate without actually having to install a system themselves, but can receive the benefits of community solar by becoming part of a community solar project. So yeah, so there's tons of opportunity, lots of challenges, but we're, we, we've got this if we all work together. And, um, and, and NCSEA, we're just so grateful for really taking the lead in the policymaking arena so that we can, you all can just tell us what to do and we'll do it. <laughs> You've highlighted a number of different examples of how churches in North Carolina have really been on the cutting edge of access for, for solar, right? And, and helping to spearhead new programs that that really open up new opportunities within the market, not only for congregations and, and churches, but for for all other areas within the, the economy here in North Carolina, especially for other sort of nonprofits or other organizations that previously have been unable to obtain or install solar, right? You talked about things like third-party sales and leasing, and then now community solar. And, and all of those have been a challenge to a degree, but we've continued to work on them as a community. And and actually, for, for our listeners right now, there's there's a bill in front of the General Assembly to raise the leasing cap in the state from 1% to 10% of, of solar sales moving forward, which would be huge in, in opening the market for more opportunities for, for houses of worship to install solar. And then if we have a rebate in place again, that makes it even uh, more appetizing for them as well. And and community solar has, has long been a challenge here in North Carolina that we want to continue to to really push forward and enable more access for those that maybe don't have the ability to install on their own roof themselves. So NCIPL has been really instrumental in a lot of these conversations and helping to move the ball forward, especially opening up the market for, for so many folks who previously were unable to install solar. And as part of the the experience in, in deploying renewables or implementing energy efficiency programs, NCIPL is also providing a suite of services for these congregations. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of this as well? Sure. And through our energy working group that Ren mentioned, this is a monthly group of volunteers. It's a volunteer-led uh, group of experts that have, since before my time, when I came on in 2011, around 2006, this group of volunteers began providing what we call our energy savings analysis program. So we offer at no cost to the congregation, a building walkthrough, a kind of energy audit. We stopped calling it our energy audit program because no one wants to be audited. So that was not a good uh, <laughs> promo uh, when we were trying to cold call some of these churches to, to, to help them with their energy savings. And we realized it really is an analysis of how to save energy and money. And uh, as our executive director of the Council of Churches likes to say, I don't know why your program seems so challenging. It's in the Bible to care for God's creation and it'll save the church's money. This is a no brainer. And I'm like, yeah, if only it was that easy. <laughs> but the reality is we've pro provided over 250 energy savings analyses, um, reports that have been written up for this building type specifically for the congregation. Um, we're getting ready. I'm very excited to meet with Lumbee River Cooperative to think about what a program would look like this for all of their churches in their cooperative territory. We worked very closely with uh, Roanoke Electric Cooperative to do analyses in how congregations that are in their ter uh, co-op territory can help take advantage of their pay-as-you-save and on-bill financing program. 
We'd love to work with every uh, utility and cooperative across the state. Again, we do advocacy to prevent any new fossil fuel infrastructure in North Carolina. And while we're doing that, we're also sitting at the table with the utilities themselves to make sure that they're designing programs that will provide the best energy efficiency programs and renewable energy programs possible for their own customers and member owners across the state. So it's an exciting time to do both the inside outside strategy of advocacy because the real sweet spot, right, is an implementation. We can talk all day long about the world we want, but we actually have to be implementing it simultaneously. And that's where houses of worship are a perfect grounding spot for that. Yeah, the the world we want is one filled with compassion. It's one filled with love. It's one where People don't have to be disproportionately impacted by the impacts of climate change. And so when we think about this world we want, we also have to think about how are we going to get there? And that takes real actions from you and me and from the people that are in charge of our government. And so it's up to us to really be holding people accountable for what needs to happen so that we can get there. Because it's not just going to be the world that we want. It's the world that we need to create as well. And that's done through educating people with all of the many resources we have through NCIPL, through IPL's Cool Congregation Network, through all of the, the breadth of knowledge that we have created as a humanity, as people, uh, and through our connections. When we educate people, when we mobilize everybody who is caring about these issues, then that only leads us to become inspired to, to truly act on what is needed. And Ren, you know, you, you outline uh, the, the vision. So, so how and why are people of faith positioned to make a difference in clean energy deployment and growth here in the state? Well, I feel like we've we've talked a lot about hope so far, right, and about the need for community. And as people of faith, we are a group of people where, when we look through the lens of faith. It is then where we can triumph over despair and look towards a future that is brighter. We have to change the, the way and the perspective that people are viewing climate change, the way that people are viewing each other, and move away from transactional relationships and towards transformation. And people of faith, I mean, it's, it's right there in the Bible, the way that in which we we do this. Uh, we can't think of it as, you know, a business as usual. We, as a, as a people of faith, must talk to our lawmakers, our community members, our friends, our family, and, and really show that the response is that we need love to, to change the world around us. And when people of faith begin this conversation based off of a place of love, rather than transactions. That is when the discussion moves away from business and towards humanity and what humanity needs so that we can create a world where we can all be proud. Going back to some of the the items and things that we were talking about a little bit earlier when we, you know, you mentioned some of the the big ticket energy related issues that we're working on here in North Carolina, like 
the carbon plan, like rate cases. I'm curious how NCIPL is is engaging in these topics, and how are you engaging your stakeholders and your community on these topics more specifically? Thanks. Well, I can speak directly to what it meant for us to become formal interveners in the North Carolina Carbon Plan docket. We're very grateful to partner with Reich Longest, who's the director of the Duke University Law Clinic. So his relationship with education and the students that are working on energy justice issues in academia, as well as from a legal perspective, one of the things that we're most dedicated to and one of our primary campaigns moving forward is to really understand what a stakeholder bill of rights might look like. You know, stakeholder engagement is something that is thrown around, a terminology that's like included and often just a box that, you know, major forces of power might check off and say, oh, sure, we do stakeholder engagement. Um, And then they pick and choose who those stakeholders are. When we look at energy democracy from a holistic perspective, I like to to often remind even our own constituents that we work with, there's almost no one boycotting electricity right now. (laughs) That's not an action that people are taking. So we're all involved in this. And yet it is such a small sliver of society that, you know, is in the weeds around energy policy making. And so when we talk about a rate case, you know, the the numbers of neighbors that are sitting around their kitchen table talking about this are few and far between. And yet it should be something that everyone has information about. Um, And a, I like, you know, use the word term on-ramp as a space and a place to give voice to their own lived experience and the realities of of, of, of how this connects, you know, just having their kids learn from how to how, how electricity works all the way to what powers all these gadgets that everybody's on all day long, um, how the air conditioning is keeping us cool today. All of the details of our modern day society come back to this core understanding of, of our energy grid system. And in order to make that transformational change that Ren was referencing, we have to be able to really understand what our own participation in the electricity grid is. And that's what I love about the way we do our work. Again, we're not just out on the street demanding that the world becomes different without showing that we can be the difference that we seek. We are the ones that we are waiting for. And so those congregations that have went all the way to the point of being able to install solar or be involved in the solar generation, community solar dialogues um, and having their voices heard um, is absolutely critical to the success of that future that we want. And so storytelling is a huge part of what we hope to educate, inspire, and mobilize around. And actually, Ren is um, one of the best storytellers I know. So Ren, if you want to share a little bit about what you do to help provide on-ramps for folks to be able to tell their story in public hearings and in different spaces. Yeah, so I'd say that storytelling plays this really amazing role of being something that people can use to not only learn about the issues, but also be inspired to act themselves. Uh, For example, last year when we were going through the beginning stages of the carbon plan hearings, I I had never testified before at that point. I didn't even know if I wanted to testify that day, but 
we, as well as other people, helped to create a space where people were actually performing at the beginning before we actually went into the courthouse for the hearing itself. We, we held this little rally and had songs and people gave speeches about why it is that it's important that we are here in this space and now. And that was done through art and storytelling. And literally because of the words that other people were saying, I don't know, I just, I felt something kind of click in my head. And I was like, this is it. This is what we need. I need to say this too. I need to act. And so when we tell our story, when we hear other people tell their stories, we see this, this awesome effect of almost like a, like a ripple, right? It starts with a single drop. One person can inspire 10, who can inspire 100, who can inspire 1,000, and all of a sudden you have a movement in your hands. And through story, we, we can create a world in which what we want can become possible. And so we did that with the carbon plan hearings. We're doing that now in the work that we are doing uh, with, with youth and still in general around energy justice. And it's just kind of really like a, a fundamental element of what it is that we need to create this just transition that we're aiming for. It's not, it's not a single campaign. It's, it's all of them. And I just wanted to mention and give Big props and kudos. That was Ren's very first day on the job. The first thing that I said, I said, come on, we're headed over to this rally outside the courthouse for the first carbon plan hearing. And Ren came along. And the next thing I know, Ren is walking into the building ready to testify and tell their story. So yeah, the power, the power of storytelling is, is absolute magic. Talking about uh, throwing someone to the wolves in their, <laughs> their first couple of days on the job. Um, we love all of creation. Wolves are part of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I couldn't agree more, right, with the power of, of, of storytelling in, in helping to make some of these very obscure topics or issues that we're working on relatable to the, the daily lived experience for, for many people, right? You know, Rate cases in and of themselves are very intimidating uh, and are very unapproachable. But when you start talking about, you know, what the the realistic effects of raising electricity rates thirty percent on somebody's bottom line and being able to afford, you know, paying for food or medicine uh, and having to make the tough decisions right between paying your electricity bill and some of those other things going on in, in life is is something that I think is is really tangible and really understandable for a lot of folks. And, and, and storytelling is a really important piece to that. And, and something that's been a real challenge, I think, in terms of engagement around energy-related topics and, and the, the venue of, of the Utilities Commission. And so having organizations like NCIPL is really important to help make these issues more relatable to, to congregations and individuals all across the state. So... Overall, what are some of the most important priorities for NCIPL moving forward, and how can listeners support those priorities? 
Great. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we actually have a formalized statement from our 38-member governing board representing all 18 denominations across the state. This letter was uh, actually submitted as part of our advocacy in imposing the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, and we are currently actively supporting the efforts to stop the Mountain Valley Pipeline extension into Southgate extension into North Carolina. We're able to do this in solidarity with our partners in Virginia, of course, where the Mountain Valley Pipeline will be going through. So the formalized statement that was passed unanimously by the governing board of the North Carolina Council of Churches opposes any new fossil fuel infrastructure in North Carolina. None. Zero. No pipelines, no new coal plants. When we look at fossil fuels and any kind of extractive, you know, fuel generation source, we also are not supportive of any nuclear development. Um, That's a very pollutive process that does not have a good decommissioning strategy in any way whatsoever. And it directly impacts the people and places that we love. So Uh, Clean, efficient, renewable energy is our absolute priority across the board. No negotiations around that whatsoever. Um, I mentioned specific campaigns. And um, yes, we hope that um, folks understand that fracked gas pipelines coming into North Carolina are not any kind of transitional fuel. It's actually going to be stranded assets that are going to directly impact communities and are our horrible idea economically as well for our state. So that's um, the blanket (laughs) overview of what we do through NCIPL. And then some other specific campaigns that we have, as I mentioned, is helping to really lift up the voices of communities. There's been a stakeholder scorecard of how groups um, do or do not do well in actually engaging communities in their stakeholder engagement processes. So we're going to be building that out over the course of the next couple of years. The Duke University Law Clinic that I mentioned has developed a bill of rights for stakeholder engagement through our the power of our partnerships is to really to hold places of power and people in power accountable to, to the justice issues that we put first and foremost. We also work on collaboratively, as we mentioned, on national scales. So we're part of something called the Breathe Again Collaborative, Healthy Air is Healthcare, which has direct implications to energy generation, obviously. Um, And we work on both local policy and federal policy issue areas. Implementing federal grants right now through the Justice 40 program is very, very important to us, making sure the money goes where Um, It is most needed. Um, We have historical failures of doing that through federal funding into states and how it gets somewhat lost um, in the process because it's so complicated and communities have a really challenging time applying for those federal funds um, and they need them the most. We also are working on coastal resiliency. So we have a multi-year grant through NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Affiliation of the federal government. And we're going to be working at the coast in helping to develop what we call congregational resiliency hubs. We're looking at climate and health holistically and where energy generation fits into that. A whole host of services. Uh, There's really, I like to say, nothing under the sun, literally and figuratively, that we don't work on. And we remind our elected officials that it is 
2023 and it's time to stop harnessing the energies from the hells below of which all fossil fuels come from and focus on harnessing the energies from the heavens above of which all clean renewable energy is generated from. So it, you know, that theological framework is something that we really hope uh, meets the hearts and minds of folks that might not be able to be as visionary for whatever political or, you know, business economic old models that they think that they're working from. But we know that change is, again, not only possible, but needed. And on our website, we have all of these different issue areas listed. We hope you'll come to our website, get involved. And if you don't identify as someone with a particular religious affiliation, we are working with folks all across the state and finding that a lot of people identify as spiritual and not religious. And there's good reason for that. So as a multi-faith organization, we also refer to ourselves as people of faith and conscience. And we hope that everyone in North Carolina actually has a conscience and understands what is really at stake at this time. Yeah, I would say that ultimately our priority is to really be weaving together these connections of the larger picture, picture, right? And doing that through the lens of faith, uh, through the work that we're doing in environmental justice, through justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and making sure that that is embedded in the bedrock of not only our work, but in our communities and uh, from local to a global scale. And that's that's what we're moving towards. We're moving towards something that will hopefully be happening sooner rather than later, because as you may know, we are kind of running out of time. So now is the time in which we need to act and we must act with urgency. Well, one, I don't know how you have time to sleep with everything that that y'all have listed that you are working on because there is a ton going on not only here in North Carolina but you're you're also working on things at the national and international levels so I'm I'm just so appreciative of all of the work that you, y'all's team is doing in this space uh, and that NCSEA uh, is able to call NCIPL an, uh, a partner in much of the work that we do and and you know we've already seen the the fruits of all of that labor really start to to come about i mean ncsea and ncipl had previously worked on a uh, a graphic that shows all the different houses of worship across the state that have installed solar and we have a number of them that that have already to this point and a number more that we need to update uh, as well so i'll encourage folks too to to keep an eye on ncsea's website as we uh, continue to to list out uh, many of of those houses of worship that have already committed themselves to installing solar, which is just incredible. So, a, a huge shout out and a, a big testament to to the work that that your team is doing. Well, I, I want to thank both of you so much for for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. I know our listeners will too, and uh, looking forward to having you both uh, back on the podcast again for a future episode where we can talk about all of the progress being made on on all of the different fronts that we've talked about here. So thank you both for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been great. Thank you. 
As you heard in the conversation with Ren and Susanna, communities of faith have been key stakeholders in advocating for an accelerated clean energy transition here within the state. And even more so than their direct participation in these issues at the North Carolina Utilities Commission, the General Assembly, and throughout communities across the state, they're also walking the walk and having deployed solar on houses of worship throughout North Carolina. And to check out which buildings across the state have installed solar, I've included a link in the show notes to a graphic that North Carolina Interfaith Power and Light and NCSEA partnered on showcasing these facilities. This episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is brought to you by Solarize the Triangle, a community-based group purchasing program for solar energy and battery storage. The program now has more than 12 governments participating here in the Triangle area, allowing homeowners from all across the region to participate and see significant savings on the cost of installation via the power of group purchasing. So if you're interested in installing solar on your home, there's never been a better time. Visit SolarizeTheTriangle.com for more information today. All right, and that's all for today's episode. Have ideas for future episodes or a burning clean energy question you want to see covered? Send me a note at mattable at energync.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider contributing or sponsoring today to help ensure we can continue to bring you great content like today's episode. Sponsorship opportunities and more can be found at energync.org forward slash the squeaky clean energy podcast. And episode 96 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.